This is Johnny Blue Star. Welcome to Threshold, a global media event. Is the universe just a random dance of atoms, or is it a manifestation of a supremely intelligent architect? Can its purpose, or our purpose here on Earth, be adequately assessed? Can we commune with it, know its intentions, cooperate with its direction? Here, we define Threshold as a gateway state of awareness, allowing mankind to cross into a place of real cognition. Threshold allows us to approach questions of higher reality through the door of experience rather than mere belief. Welcome to Threshold, where we tear away the veil from commercial media, bringing our audience and participants into another realm of reality and enhanced communication. So uh, we're back on Threshold Radio with the second part of a show with Kay Kinnaman. And we're, we're just going to discuss in this show, at least in part, the mindset of an entrepreneur. And uh, in our last show, just when we ended, you were talking about how, a, how an entrepreneur tends to think a little bit differently than the normal person. And maybe you could go into that in more deep depth. Yep. I'm going to finish also answering part of the question from that last segment about the LinkedIn. And this is where it becomes important for me to identify that mindset. So of the number of connections I have, I have business connections, I have student connections, and I have entrepreneurship connections. You know, three, I would say, distinct groups. There is a distinction between an entrepreneurship or an entrepreneur's mindset and a business individual's mindset, even though they have a lot of the same skill sets, knowledge, items, whatever else. Now, the way I use LinkedIn is I am looking for someone with an entrepreneurship mindset. I can actually use LinkedIn to identify those people. And then those are the individuals I send a message to saying, hey, would you mind doing a survey for me? And to get into the mindset to, to try to explain this more, one of the, the academic words, big fancy word, but it's really easy to when you break it down, it's called opportunity recognition. Huh? And that is for whatever reason, some individuals, they see something that other people don't see. Some way of taking, I don't want to say take advantage of the bad way, but take advantage of something in a good way. How They see someone struggling with something and they're like, you know, I could make that better and then sell it to lots of people. Or they see, you know, someone having a problem with something else, or I can make that and make it safer. Or I'm doing part of this of my normal job, but there's a way I could automate this. Or there's a way I could do something to make this much, much easier. And that... I could make it or I could see this or that's what that's that opportunity recognition. They're they're not just seeing their physical environment, they're seeing a way to somehow improve that environment in some way or form. Not everyone has that. Um, and it's, it's it's not just like a binary, some people have it, some people don't. It's more like of a sliding scale, zero to a hundred. You know, but most people are kind of dear, you know, near that bottom end of probably like, you know, the twenties or tens, whatever else. But then you got some of these people up in the eighties and the nineties. Those people that are really high, usually they'll do something and, you know, once they're successful at it, they do it again, you know, and something else. And we give those guys uh, the term serial entrepreneurs. But it's that mindset of seeing something and that they can do something with it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, there's an immediate connection to, you know, usually customers, you know. I'm thinking, again, uh, this is one of the, the entrepreneurship events I went to, this Individual designed, I want to say a trolley, but a, a hand truck, uh, if that's the correct term, you know, for lifting everything, whatever else, and moving them back and forth. Yeah. Uh, he designed a wheel system so that they could go upstairs much easier and not risk falling back over or something like that. You know what I'm saying? And he was a delivery person for the longest time. And he's like, you know, for some things, you have to really lean back and put your back into it or else, you know, it could, you know, literally slingshot you over the top as it fell back down the stairs or something like that. So he saw a, a way to improve the product that he was using every single day, but it wasn't just for him. He, he's, you know, he's like, this could be for everyone who's making deliveries using these hand truck items. And so that's where I, I would key in on that opportunity recognition item. So I think that's the fundamental difference between entrepreneurs and quote, non-entrepreneurs. Right. Uh, the other thing, and this is where the research kind of focuses again on that opportunity recognition is risk level. Uh, how much risk is an individual willing to take? And this is some really interesting research lately on it. Most people used to think that entrepreneurs were inherently risky people. And the new evidence is kind of backing away from that. They're perceived by, I want to say us as normal individuals as being more risky. But if you are... Um, 
I would like to use you as an example. What, what did you do before you started doing podcasting items? What was your job skill? I guess you'd say I, uh, for a long period, I was kind of a freelance writer. But I, I worked for other for clients, but I've always, for years, and continued to do so, created my own proprietary products. So that goes back a long way. Okay. Well, I, I can use that writing as, as an example, though. You know, most writers aren't... Uh, you know, writing their own novels, whatever else, they're writing stuff for corporations or businesses or whatever else. And so at some point in time, you've developed a writing system that works well, or you saw something like that where you were able to tweak it and take advantage of it. But a lot of people just are going to see that normal everyday activity as kind of like their boundaries. That's their box. And that's what they function in. Does that make sense? Yeah, sure. I know. Um, now, even though that might be the box that you're in, you could talk for hours and hours, I'm sure, about the writing industry, the literary industry that I know nothing about. You know what I'm saying? That level of knowledge that you have about that industry, it gives you an advantage over me about being able to access, or uh, I shouldn't say access, assess a different individual. So you could look at their work or you could look at what they're doing and you would be a better gauge of if that would be something writers would be interested in or not interested in. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because of your background? Mm-hmm. From the business background, we're looking at that situation and we're being like, oh, that's risky. You know what I'm saying? But inside the business or specifically inside that entrepreneur, usually they have some type of special, I say special knowledge, but this is their career, their industry, the area that they're working in. They have knowledge that the others don't have. And so that's kind of reduced what they think is risky, if that makes sense. Well, the overall starting a business for anybody would be very risky, right? Uh, over a period of three or five years. It, but but if you're a certain type of character, you have a certain type of character, maybe the risk is reduced just drastically with this mindset mm-hmm. that you're talking about. Yes, and yeah, so they, they're seeing something that other people don't see. And so it's whatever they're doing, it's still inherently risky. And risk and is go together. The more new something is, the more untested it is, the more risk it is, because you might think it might be a great idea, but no one else might you know, agree with that. I'm going to go back and, and use a, a real world example here. When Google Glass came out, the eyeglasses mm-hmm. for recording and everything else, yeah, I thought that was a wonderful idea. And I'm, and I'm still shocked it didn't take off. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and I, I think eventually, you know, in five, 10 years, they're going to be reintroduced and they're going to be huge. You know what I'm saying? But the market wasn't ready for it at that point in time. You know what I'm saying? Well, I was going to give you an example of that. Uh, back in, I guess it was in the 1990s, I decided to create uh, a newspaper using citizen reporters. And um, I went ahead and I, I, I did it. I actually created a community newspaper that was simply online. And um, there had been a few attempts at it, but I, I guess I had the first complete one in, in a certain way back in Coachella Valley. And um, it didn't work out because nobody... There had been a lot of scams on the internet, and this was when the internet was sort of beginning. And the idea of actually paying for a newspaper that was online, it wasn't a very popular idea. It didn't work. It, I did get some some accounts, but it wasn't. It was like local, and I was trying, but it wasn't at all easy. And then later on, you had a you you, you had well, I mean, obviously the uh, the online newspaper has destroyed the normal newspaper, right? But I was there before it was really possible. I'm a, a huge Kindle reader, and so I you know obviously read a lot of books off of Amazon. You know Amazon's website, whatever else. And I just came across a publisher, a writer, who he does nothing but write for Kindle and for Amazon. He doesn't have a physical, I mean, you actually have to special order his, his physical book. He writes them to be online, you know what I'm saying? 20 years ago, not even 20 years ago, in 2000, I hadn't heard of a, an e-reader type item, whatever else. I remember probably about five years ago, 10 years ago, I asked my students, would you be willing to do a textbook, you know, a physical textbook? No one said yes. Every single student said no. I remember that 100%. Usually you never get universal everyone saying the same thing, but 100% said no. I just recently asked a class about this because I was using technology changes, you know, as as things develop or whatever else. And only two or three of the students, and this was out of 30-some students, so uh, 10% there, wanted a, a physical textbook. Everybody else preferred the digital at this point in time. 
Yeah, there's a lot um, of advantages. I go on trips. I have to both my. Well, as I say, I go on trips. I have to read. You know, I want to do my. I don't call them pleasure readings, but you know, my professional development books. You know, what I'm saying, and my textbooks. So before I use a textbook, I have to read the textbook. <laughs> And I don't want to carry seven, eight textbooks with me on a trip. You know what I'm saying? I can I can read them pretty quick. I can go through them pretty quick. But to, I remember when I was younger, you know, seven years ago, ten years ago, I, when I went on a trip. I had a bag for nothing but my books. And mm-hmm. now that's that. I mean, I have an entire library that that's in my pocket. And, and not only that, <laughs> well, if you're, if you're has, a, has changed. Well, if you're an academic, and it's, for me as a writer and a kind of a journalist. The fact that I can t- take a book that's on Kindle and make notes on it and copy different segments of it and all that, that is a tremendous advantage. And, you know, uh, it makes things a lot simpler, right? Yep. But you have to realize this is a technology change from, I mean, we're not talking 20 years ago. We're talking like this might be a 10-year change. 10 years ago, I don't think anybody used it. And I don't know if what the number of book sales versus virtual book sales is right now. But I do know as far as my students, you know, that change has clearly jumped over to the virtual side now. I still read books all the time. Well, I was, was going to say, I, but, I, but I have to use these Kindle I'm books. I'm getting rid of my physical books. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm getting rid of my physical books. I'm getting ready to do that move again to go to South Dakota. And as I pack up this time, the only physical I'll be keeping are my textbooks. And the only reason I, I have physical copies of the textbooks is like, uh, a student will come into my office and, uh, you know, they'll say something like, that wasn't covered in the textbook or whatever else. I don't want to pull out my Kindle and go, you know what I'm saying? So I'll give them the physical one because I, I know it's in there, whatever else, marked off. So I'll have a physical copy of the textbooks I use and then a couple of reference items. But all my other books, like uh, I'm looking at my shelf right now, famous read. I'm sure everyone's probably did this, The Psychology of Influence of Persuasion, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Yeah. Um, I'll put those on my shelf so I can give them to students. But... I don't read these, ver- you know, when I go back and relook at these ones, whatever else, I don't read them anymore. I, or at least not off of paper. I, I pull them off a of Kindle. So technology has moved us. <laughs> yes, it has. Well, we'll be right back and uh, continue our conversation in just a moment. This is Johnny Blue Star, CEO of New Galaxy Enterprises, a media content development company. One of the most exciting projects I've regularly been involved in is the creation of nonfiction books, often collaborating with new authors on a wide variety of topics, either through editing or through writing, sometimes being guided by the client's direction or collaborating directly with the client. In this capacity, I've worked on a book on abolishing the caste system in India, a system of selling with integrity and sensitivity towards client and product, several fascinating memoirs, one with a Korean war veteran and crime fighter, another with one of the greatest ventriloquists and television producers in the 50s and 60s. To learn more about New Galaxy, see samples of our work, or talk to us about your project, please go to www.newgalaxyenterprises.com and fill out the contact form. In Ken Ede's book, The Involuntary Spy, Seth Rogen, a scientist, after having discovered a major deception created by a multi-billion dollar worldwide agribusiness giant that he works for, is driven by his conscience to release the information to the public at the peril of his reputation, career, and life itself. To do this, he must take refuge in Moscow. Here is an excerpt. Chapter 4 Yuri helped Seth settle into the safe house in Moscow. Tomorrow night, he would take the nine-hour flight to the Far East. From the apartment, he could see the colorful and distinctive towers of St. Basil's Cathedral from his window, and the glittering gold onion domes of the Church of Annunciation in the Kremlin. This was the Kremlin he had seen so many times on television. Back then, during the Cold War, it had represented the seat of the Empire of Evil. Now, it was oddly beautiful. The American press was already doing damage control on Seth's report to Russia today. The president called it propaganda, and said that the United States was against the manufacture of biological weapons. Spokesmen from the company said that Seth's report to RT should be disregarded as the words of a traitor and a thief. Because of his fleeing the country, Seth's story was discredited in every mainstream media report. Okay, your name now is George Amers, said Yuri, smiling, holding out documents. Here is new passport. I'm Canadian? Yes. Does that mean I have to say A all the time? Seth, Russians don't care what you say. 
but don't talk to people. Don't talk to people. And don't go anywhere. Just to work and back home. Sounds boring. Isn't that what you guys do in America anyway? Well, yeah. Okay. Don't make friends. If you want a girl, we get you girl. That sucks. Look, it's only for six months. Then you can do what you want. If you see anything suspicious, call me. Six months, eh? Yes, six months. Oh, and shave mustache and color hair. What? You prefer shave head and color mustache? No, no, that's okay. I'll take the hair color. And we fix nose. What's wrong with my nose? Nose too big. It's not. We fix anyway. Okay, let me see if I've got it. Don't go anywhere. Don't make friends. Sleep with prostitutes that you send to me and wear a disguise. Yes, you are smart. Don't forget to use lenses I give you for eyes. And what? Lose some weight. Seth worked on his disguise with the materials Yuri had left in the safe house. He said a fond farewell to the mustache that had been with him since high school and picked a dark brown color to mask his light brown hair. With the contacts in, his eyes changed from green to brown. He didn't even recognize himself. The surface disguise was the easy part. Being George Amers would be the true disguise to master. And here's a beautiful ballad by Zave Music called Believe. Stay strong and keep loving our hearts And we mustn't forsake forget who we are As our future and past are written in the stars Every day of our life we should pray to the sky We are one, we are loved Back on the air with Kay Kinnaman, and we're talking about the mindset of the of an entrepreneur. And um, I'm wondering, do you think what, how does the uh, desire for making a lot of money play in with the mindset of a lot of the entrepreneurs you make? Is that a really critical motivation, or is that a it's just something that goes along with the territory? That's an actually interesting question. It uh, most people that enter entrepreneurship are not the ones that are thinking about striking it rich. There's is one of the few areas in the gender, I was going to say there's a gender gap difference between this, but it is getting smaller at this point in time. If you ask people why they entered entrepreneurship, I'm going to go back you know, 20 years ago, a lot more of the males would have said, I want to be rich. I want to be the next Steve Jobs or you know whatever else. Um, and females would usually say security and lifestyle. Move forward to nowadays, right now. The number of females that want to, quote, strike it rich has increased, but the number of males who are looking for lifestyle or income replacement has also increased. And so it's gotten much, much more similar. But even though it's gotten much, much more similar, the bigger area of why people enter, you know, do their own business is is not money. Money tends to be a motivator up to a certain point above and beyond that, like, you know. If someone decides to throw an extra million dollars at you, you're going to take it, you know what I'm saying? But how much more does each additional dollar, you know, motivate you to work harder or whatever else? After you get to a certain point, you're like, you know what? I earn good enough money. I want to go spend it or I want to go do it. You know, there's not too many people that are just going to continue to drive to earn more and more and more. But what a lot of people who do start their own businesses like is they like power over themselves. And I think that's probably, if, if it's not the number one, it's in the top five you know, for why people do it. The other one is income replacement. For whatever reason, they don't. The business world is getting more flexible on this, but there are people out there who don't want to work full-time. They just don't. You know what I'm saying? For whatever reason, they have other things they want to do or 
you know, maybe have like their house and everything's already paid off where they don't need a whole lot of new money coming in and they want to do something else. And so I'm thinking about people, you know, who like do like volunteer work. They want to spend half their week volunteering and then they spend the other half of the week, you know, doing their job or whatever else. And so the make it rich part has has kind of gotten smaller as the other side of the group of people who are trying to do income replacement or job fulfillment or personal power has increased. So not saying it's still not there, but it's just not as big as it used to be. Well, could you give us some examples? I mean, you've given us a few of some of the people that you've worked with and uh, that have become relatively successful in what they did. I'm going to use some local entrepreneurs here. So I, uh, and I'm sorry, I'm really bad at names, but it's well, probably easy to pull her up. One's this lady who makes, uh, she makes um, custom popcorn. You know, however you want popcorn made, she will make it and flavor it that way. So she can make pizza flavored popcorn, vanilla flavored popcorn, caramel popcorn, you know, literally any type of popcorn that you want, whatever else. Uh, she is, uh, and she'll partner with organizations that are do, trying to do fundraising. And so, you know, she partners with them and she, that's how she gets some of her sales. She has a booth at the farmer's market, I believe, you know, as far as selling it, whatever else. Now, if you want to throw more money at her, I'm sure she'll take it. You know what I'm saying? But her main thing was to start up kind of like her business and have the power, you know, to do that. Another individual I'm thinking of, he uh, created a line of, I'm going to say herbal remedies for athletes, for sports athletes. Mm-hmm. He used to be a professional. I think he was professional. If not, he was really high amateur side, but I believe he was professional uh, kickboxer type person. Uh-huh. And, you know, you get injury, you, you know, you used to rub the Bengay stuff on it, whatever else. And, you know, his thing was like, how many chemicals and how many, you know, what are you putting on your body? You're in your body type thing, whatever else. And so he went and designed some, uh, some products that would, you know, be similar, but were quote natural, you know what I'm saying? Like aloe vera or something. He, his, yeah. So he would use the, the natural supplement items, his business. I mean, I, he was actually, I, I believe offered, um, like a part of a shelf, at, uh, give me a second to think. I want to say Walgreens or CVS or something like that, which that's a big deal. Shelf space is very valuable. You know what I'm saying? To be able to sell his product, whatever else. And he, he turned it down because his product, he wants it to keep it a niche product. He doesn't want to make it mainstream. You know what I'm saying? He wants, okay, people buying a product, I want them to be familiar with me. I want them to have a, a direct connection. If there's a problem with the product, I want them to come back directly to me. Right. So he's successful. He's doing well, but he's not doing the ultra rich. In fact, he actually used to do an entrepreneurship series here in, in Huntsville, Alabama. And uh, uh, I forgot. He had some weird name for it, but it was kind of funny. But one of the things... That was interesting is we had an individual come because I would go to a lot of his sessions just to sit and watch and listen to whatever else. We had an individual that came to one of his sessions and uh, he was really big about talking about people's passion. What are you passionate about? Now, passion won't pay the bills, but I think passion is important is because anybody who's did entrepreneur knows that you put a lot of time into it, much more time, especially when you're starting out than you would at a traditional job. So if you're not sold into this, if you don't believe in the product, if you don't like it, you're not going to stick to it and you're probably not going to be successful. And uh, so this individual showed up and I think he was a real estate agent and his goal was to be, you know, the number one real estate agent for sales or whatever else. And uh, he kept trying to get to him. He's like, why do you want that? Like what, what's motivating that? What's driving that? You know, and, and the person didn't really have an answer. For me as a management professor, what I'm looking at when someone says that or when they look at those items is uh, there's a phrase I use for teaching and I, it's kind of convoluted, but it does make sense. How do I get you to want to do what I want you to do? You can't force other people to do what you want to do. As soon as they get out of the situation where they're being forced, they're going to leave, quit, whatever else. So somehow you got to get the individual to want to do what you want them to do. Usually that means like some type of goal alignment. So the individual wants to say earn more money. Okay, well, if you do these projects successfully, we'll give you a promotion. You know, or they want more leadership responsibility. Okay, you complete this training and you prove yourself worthy and, you know, these projects, whatever else, we'll look at promoting you. I'm aligning my goals with what I want with what that individual wants. Well, I think the same applies to entrepreneurship. You need to be motivated, be aligned with whatever you're doing. If you're just selling a product, as soon as you hit a dollar point or as soon as it becomes you know, you're not making the profit that you want to or whatever else, you're going to quit. So, Well, I don't know if you looked at my profile, but what I ask for in clients is that they have a sense of mission. 
actually, since I've done a lot of different kinds of writing, I really don't like to write, excuse me, academically. In other words, I don't want to just write something because somebody wants some particular thing, uh, some article for something. I want them to really care about what they're doing. So I'm looking for people who have a sort of a mission. Mm -hmm. And so I I have had a lot of clients like that, but that's what I look for. Yeah, in business, that's why we we talk about the mission statement being so important. How do you get people tied into an idea or you know that mission statement that's going to motivate them? Well, an entre- Remember, I was talking about strategy and entrepreneurship. Yeah. You know, one of the first things in strategy we teach you to do is make a mission statement. Well, entrepreneurship is no different than strategy. It's just the number of people that you have. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I don't yeah. have an entire top management team to help me think of this mission statement. I need to do it. You know what I'm saying? And uh, it needs to be something that uh, speaks to that individual. But then also as the individual grows, it needs to speak to the people that they're adding you know, to their team. A very difficult thing for a lot of entrepreneurs to do. They'll start expanding their brand new team, but their new team members are not aligned with what they want. You know what I'm saying? They're looking for a paycheck or they're looking for whatever else. And it's not what the original founder kind of started their business for. That's going to cause conflict. And eventually somebody's going to get quit. You know, somebody's going to quit or somebody's going to get fired or there's going to be a, you know, really ugly breakup going on. But, you know, my general thing is mission statements, one of the most important things to do that vision statement, same thing. Where do you want to go? How do you know? What do you see yourself as doing it? This gives people direction. I don't want to say how to behave, but how to move forward. And if someone doesn't tie into your mission statement, like you're hiring somebody and they don't agree with your mission statement, that's fine. Just don't hire them. They're just not the right person. It's not nothing bad against the person. It just means they're not the right person for you. Well, we're going to uh, stop for a moment and we'll be right back. We're going to stop for a moment and we'll be right back in just a minute. My company, New Galaxy Enterprises, is a California corporation specializing in the creation of media and promotional content. We are focused on original, innovative projects that are good for humanity. These projects could be nonfiction books or novels, fictional screenplays or documentary content, websites and website content, commercial advertising content for print, audio, or video products on the internet, television, or radio, musical scores for advertising, television, or film, video, audio editing, etc. We want to promote products and projects that support the environment, encourage a healthy experience in living, developing, nurturing, and useful technology, and offering platforms for positive, socially constructive entertainment or informative, transformative media. Our experience in creating a variety of products like this is rather vast, and we offer client-based and collaborative products, as well as the opportunity of active investors to join us in the creation and promotion of proprietary products, some of which are in latter stages of development. For more information, go to www.NewGalaxyEnterprises.com. That's www.NewGalaxyEnterprises.com. If you're interested in talking to us, just fill out the contact sheet and we will get back with you. If you're not fond of books, you may be interested in watching Dr. Rodier's slide presentation on his website, hugorodier.com. That's H-U-G-O-R-O-D-I-E-R.com. It lasts 48 minutes and explains the simple roots of all diseases with pictures and graphs that are easy to understand. The presentation includes basic principles of physics, philosophy, anthropology, and history to truly integrate the most vital pillars of human health. And now Patricia Welch in Fly Me to the Moon. Spring is like on Jupiter and Mars 
This is Johnny Blue Star with Kay Kinnaman, and we're discussing the mindset of the entrepreneur. And you know, one thing we haven't really discussed yet, Kay, is um, we haven't discussed failure. I, I think that I, I would say, having looked at a lot of books and a lot of people who are entrepreneurs, a lot of them will say that failure is extremely important in terms of developing yourself as an entrepreneur. How do you think about that? I 100% agree, and it's this is one of those things I've also started reading on more myself because uh, I think I mentioned it before to you personally, but not on the radio show. My wife is also a PhD and she is a experimental social psychology. So she looks at people's self-esteem and items like that. And so this, this idea of failure is very common as far as a psychological construct item, you know what I'm saying? So her and I have started looking into this much more and kind of, I guess, evaluating it more from an academic perspective. From an entrepreneurship perspective, uh, straight up, you have to have failure. There's just no way you can perfectly predict a product or a design or whatever else. And so I don't know if failure is the correct word for that, though. You know what I'm saying? It's just Mm -hmm. not exactly what the customer was looking for. But it doesn't necessarily make it a failure. You know what I'm saying? Right. I mean, yeah, this, this customer didn't like my product because of this. It didn't work. And you know, a famous failure example is 3M with their glue for uh, post-it notes. You know, uh, somebody developed a really, really crappy glue that didn't stick very well. And someone else figured out, hey, we could reuse this little sticker thing and it created post-it notes. You know what I'm saying? That success came from a failure. But uh, people's egos get tied into their products or their business items and they look at failure as a hit on themselves as, as part of their of who they are. And I think they need to learn to split that away and look at it instead as a test. You know what I'm saying? Oh, I was going to say, Thomas Edison actually has a phrase where he talks about how many times he tried to come up with a light bulb filament. And he says they weren't failure. They were, you know, 999 tries or something like that of what not to do. I'm going to give you a personal example of attitudes towards failure. I wrote the, uh, I helped write or edit, if you like, the autobiography of Paul Winchell, who was one of the world's most famous ventriloquists in the 50s and the 60s. You ever hear of him? Paul Winchell and Jerry Mahoney? I uh, do not follow that, but well, the first probably, I heard him, but I don't follow that type of news a lot. Oh, well, this, uh, he was uh, introduced uh, as a ventriloquist on the Ed Sullivan Show. Anyway, he became very famous and uh, okay. a very successful television producer. But on the side, he was an inventor. I don't know how many things he invented, but... Uh, one of them was the art of, he actually patented the first artificial heart. This is ventriloquist. And he, he, oh, did, wow. it with, he did it with the help of, of Dr. Heimlich. The Heimlich technique, you know, uh, when somebody's coughing or, uh, you know, he, you put your hand around their, their, their chest and you kind of squeeze and it pops out. Well, Dr. Heimlich was a personal friend of his and helped him. And um, it, it actually was donated, the idea, the, the patent was donated to the University of Utah. And it, it, where the first artificial heart was developed, a little bit different than his invention. And it, it was a very famous incident, and the guy was a dentist, and it didn't last very long. He didn't do well. But uh, it wasn't because of Paul's invention. Anyway, one of the things, he, he invented like dozens and dozens of products. And one of them was the razor. It was the uh, it was the disposable razor. He invented that. I have an advertisement, you know, with him, you know, shaving himself. He put it up in a you know a convenience store, or whatever was something like that, and uh, watching him shaving. And he was all ready to sell it, but it didn't work. He did not renew his patents for dozens of things. And the disposable razor business is probably a billion dollar business by now. Billions of dollars, right? But yep. he invented it and he gave it up. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, there were other things he invented that he gave up because he got disillusioned. And, and he was famous. He was real famous. But he didn't have the... There was a part of him that he heavily penalized himself for those failures. And he didn't look at himself really as a success. He wanted to be a, a famous actor uh, too. And he had programs where he had some of the most famous actors in the country on his show. But he himself didn't make it to that level that he wanted to. And he he, he was probably the most beloved uh, uh, ventriloquist in the world. And uh, and yet he ne- never could find comfort in, in himself. So that's my story. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean... It actually has a number of things for entrepreneurship. I make a very big distinction between inventors and entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Inventors come up with items like they see the fix, but they they don't see the marketplace correctly for whatever reason. Like you said, the disposable razor. <laughs> that you know, Gillette took that and ran with it. You know, and and did turn it into like a billion dollar industry. You know, there is a marketplace out there, but. He wasn't able to, for whatever reason, he wasn't able to introduce it, you know, to that market. You know what I'm saying? And I'm not saying he did anything wrong. This actually goes back to another thing about entrepreneurs. I think that uh, is extremely important is even though usually entrepreneurs start up with a single individual, whatever else, you really quickly need to grow into a team. No single individual is going to have all the skill sets and all the knowledge and all the items that you are going to need to bring product to market or a service to market. And he might have been a great inventor, but that's where you need a marketing person, you know, a salesperson, somebody who can get it in front of the customers in such a way that they want to buy it. I'm thinking back, you know, back in the 40s and the 50s, they used to have those uh, x-ray machines, you know, in in drugstores. We'd go in there and you could like look at your feet live and stuff like that. I think it was in shoe stores too, right? At one point. (laughs) Yeah. To to see the alignment of your feet as it lines in the shoe, whatever. Okay. But these were all gimmicks to help sell the item, whatever else, you know, now those ones were kind of bad because that level of radiation is not healthy. But the, the point behind it is it was a way to get that product or get an item in front of a customer that make them take notice. You know what I'm saying? I think the same thing applies for the internet now. You know, people think you put up an advertise or you put up a website. That's enough. No, you got to do something to get your website noticed. You know what I'm saying? So I am not an internet marketer or whatever else. And so they'll probably you know, send me notices and correct me on this. But, you know, putting up a blog or putting up uh, something that drives traffic to your site so they see the information or putting up a small video or something like that, you know, multimedia content or something like that. People can see just a page by itself is no longer going to be enough, quote, marketing anymore. If someone's looking for you, yeah, they'll be able to find you and find the information. But you have to you have to go that extra step beyond there and get it in front of the people that actually want to buy the product. If he was advertising in, you know, uh, drugstores, maybe, you know, I, I don't know what he did for real, so maybe he did do this. But, you know, that's something where I would go find a bunch of barbers, you know, who are shaving people and say, hey, shave with this. I'll, I'll provide you it for free. You shave people with this and tell them they can buy one themselves. Yeah, that's a great idea. Well, I don't but, think he did. I think again, he could create all the advertising materials and everything, but I don't think he got a, He could figure out how to distribute it, anything. So it stopped at a certain really very valuable point, but he didn't take it farther. I don't know why. but um, my, my older brother's an accountant, and uh, he owns his own accounting firm up in Indiana. And uh, he used to do uh, financing for entrepreneurship startups and stuff like that. And it really frustrated him with some of the, the difference between an entrepreneur and inventor. He, he knows it, trust me. The inventor, the way that he would, he would say it, is uh, this guy comes in and they have like what they consider a million dollar idea. And they're willing to give you like, you know, $10,000 of it if you give them like $5,000 or something like that. You know what I'm saying? They're like, you're doubling what you're putting into it. Well, here's the thing. If the investor... It's accepting a certain amount of risk. They want a certain amount of reward. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And if you don't get, as an inventor, if you don't get that money, you're never going to get the product out the door. And so a phrase that he used to say all the time is, do you want all of nothing or part of something? You know, as as people would sit there and bicker back and forth about percentages, whatever else. He's like, okay, well, you know, you can, you can own all of it. It'll probably never make it a market. It'll probably never be successful because you don't have the funds to advertise and hire the right people, whatever else. Or you can sell away part of the idea and, you know, get a team of people to help you sell the product or do the product, whatever else. And I've actually seen this one quite common. 
people will be like, I don't want to give up. I want to own my whole idea. And this sounds rude, but uh, again, I do a lot of entrepreneurship. What do you want to say? Uh, consulting, you know, through the university where I go to these groups and I offer my services for free. I give people advice, you know, tell them, you know, steps to look at whatever else. But one of the ones I dread is someone comes up, they tell me a business idea and then they tell me how they don't want to give up any ownership. They don't want to do, you know, and I'm like, you know, because they're afraid someone's gonna maybe steal their idea or something like that, and I'm just like, I, I don't got anything for you. <laughs> yeah, I understand. You can't. At, at least I don't think this day and age you can't start a business by yourself. You know, if I'm if I'm going to uh, uh, create a, in fact, I take that back. Like I told you, I'm starting my own consulting firm up again. Okay, I'm not creating the content for that site. <laughs> You know? I mean, they'll be my words, you know, I'll have a professional put my stuff in that looks better or is more catchy. I'll have a website developer put it together so it looks professional and flashy or whatever else, you know, and does when you, I am not going to do that myself. You know, now I can either pay to have it done or it'd be done by me, but not be done in such a way that I won't get clients. And then that's what it amounts to. So. Yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, speaking of financing businesses, is there an average level of a person that you work with who's an entrepreneur? I mean, sort of a, a, a scale of their business. Are, are you working with a lot of large scale businesses, project, pro, projections of large scale businesses? Are you working with sort of medium? What, what sort of level are you working on? Is there an average Profile I've, I've worked with a couple uh, large scale ones, but I tend to work at the smaller ones because of the university outreach for, uh, portion. When I start my consulting stuff up, I'll, I'll be focusing more on the because the new entrepreneurs usually don't have the funds to pay for assistance, so <laughs> there's not a lot of money to be made there. So for my university service, I'll focus on the brand new startups, but my my consulting will focus more on the more developed businesses and how to get them to grow more or better or expand type stuff. Is that um, this venture capital? It, it does go across the gambit. Yeah. And well I think uh, there's a lot of different ways to raise money for any organization. And I, I don't think there's like one single best way. It's it's one of those things of it all depends on uh, the factors going into it. Venture capitalists, uh, they get a pretty bad rap. And I mean, some people really, really dislike them or hate them, whatever else. And like I said, my older brother did something very close to that. I have a soft heart for them because I know why they're doing what they're doing. They're investing into companies and most, by the numbers, roughly about 80% of new ventures go out of business. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So those 20% that they do fund, they need to make some money. Yeah. (laughs) They need to make enough money to cover all the stuff they lost on the other 80%. And so there's a logic of why they're doing what they're doing. The other thing is, and I'll tell this, anyone who's listening to your show, if you search my network, I also, I haven't focused on it recently, but for uh, probably a couple months last year, I focused on nothing but expanding my reach and connecting with investors of some sort to try to get more of those into my network to, to help the entrepreneurs. That's a good uh, idea. What I've noticed for investors, well, what I've noticed for investors is they're very, very focused just like entrepreneurs, they tend to know a certain area or know a certain item. And so there's one investor in, um, uh, let me pull a blank, I want to say Nashville, Tennessee, and this person will only invest in medical devices, period. That's it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Now, if you have a medical device, they have money for you. You know what I'm saying? But if you have like the next best battery for you know running the world, he, he doesn't care. He's looking devices. But most of the investors are like that. They focus on a certain market or a certain area. Um, I know a lot of investors that focus on certain regions, you know what I'm saying? So they're trying to do community development type items. So uh, Florence, Alabama actually is like that. There's a couple investors. They've pulled some money. And if you're going to start up a business in Florence, Alabama, they will help you out and invest money into your business. You know, but if you have a million dollar idea and you're from Chicago, they're not interested in investing in Chicago. So for a lot of investor items, you really need to search to make sure there's a good fit. And there's a number of ways to do it. I mean, you can go the angel investor route. You can do the venture capitalist route. You can do GoFundMe. I know some people who did GoFundMe successfully. It all depends on your product and what you're trying to do, though. So there is a... I had someone ask me a question recently. I went out and found a book, and I haven't had a chance to read it. So as soon as I finished reading it, one of the things I started doing is writing uh, book reviews. If it's a good book, I'll let you know. <laughs> Share okay. with your readers. Well, listen, I want to thank you so much for your visit with me. 
It's been extremely enlightening to see it in this perspective. So I wish you well, and uh, we'll be in touch. We're in the same network. Okay. Well, again, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. If you ever have a question or problem or anything else you want to follow up with me, uh, you're more than welcome to. Same to your listeners. I'm not hidden LinkedIn. I have an open network. So anybody who wants to connect with me and has a question or whatever else, I can help out. I will. If not, hopefully I know someone who can help out and I'll send you that direction. (laughs) Well, thank you. The Coalition is a unique project designed to empower its members both individually and collectively. Besides individual empowerment, its broader focus is on the restoration, protection, and enhancement of citizen and human rights throughout the world through the aid of its members. As this project is centered in the United States, our first task is to create a website and social network infrastructure to promote collective efforts to take back our rightful control as citizens over our government as designed by our founding fathers. Although we must begin with the social network restricted to United States citizens, The organization will also host a global dialogue for the discussion of human rights by citizens of democratic nations throughout the world. If you're interested, please check us out in the GoFundMe.com website, entering in the search field, the Coalition for Planetary Empowerment. That is, go to GoFundMe.com and enter in the search field, the Coalition for Planetary Empowerment. This is Johnny Blue Star. We all live very closely or within ourselves to an immense journey of self-discovery and adventure. For humanity, both the wide expanse of stars and the infinitely wider space within ourselves beckon us to make that leap forward. Thank you for making Threshold Radio part of your journey. Be well and keep cosmic. I think a lot of us want our planet back. And here's the official song about that request by Patty Greer. Let's do it 
Let's save this family And do what's right for Earth And you and me Step into the new way Into the new way Where we live in harmony No more war No more fracking We are free in charge let's do it differently sickening all the people and it's killing all the trees it's falling in our eyes and it's getting harder to see the beauty that is our world and the freedom, freedom. to be free